Well, we are nearing the end of our series through the names of God. Um, if you've been with us for the past few months, you know that each week uh, we've been looking at a different name through which God reveals himself to us in scripture. Um, and all of these names are meant to draw us deeper into God's character, deeper into who he is. And our hope is that it would draw us into a, a more intimate, meaningful relationship with God. Okay, and the name that we're looking at today is the name Jehovah Shammah. Okay, let's say that together. Jehovah Shammah. Okay, and it means the Lord is there. The Lord is there. You know, this name is, is for any of you who've ever felt like God was absent. Uh, any of you who've ever experienced a season in your life when you, when you were asking, where are you, God? Those moments when you don't feel His presence, you didn't feel His presence like you used to, maybe that's where some of us are now, and I believe this name is for you. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Okay? Uh, if you would turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, and we're going to go to the last page of the book, okay? Chapter 48, to the last uh, few verses here from verses 30 to 35. Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 30 to 35, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And, uh, you know, as I read this, they're going to be like these random units of measurement and talk about dates that you don't understand. Um, don't worry, I'm going to give us all some context here um, in a bit. But it says Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 30 to 35. This is the reading of God's word. These will be the exits of the city. Beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long, the gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Isaacar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shema. Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to give us a little bit of context, because that probably did not make any sense to us. Um, Ezekiel, for those of you who don't know, is a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, he was a part of the first wave of prisoners taken into exile after the Babylonians invaded the city. And, and throughout the book, he has a series of visions in which uh, you know, he begins to see this really bleak picture of where the relationship with God and His people have come, how broken that relationship is. In one vision, uh, God transports Ezekiel to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, and, and shows him what it's like in his absence, and it's a pretty sad picture. Uh, he goes to the entrance uh, of the inner court, and he sees this huge idol statue that's been set up, he then goes inside and then he sees all the leaders of Israel uh, bowing down and worshipping other gods. And, and, and everything is really just like bleak. Everything looks extremely hopeless. Everything is extremely disarray. They're cheating on God in his own home. Okay, This is the temple. This is the very place where God's presence dwelt. Right? And, and you know, as I'm reading the book of Ezekiel, you know, sometimes I wonder... 
You know, what Ezekiel would think if he walked into uh, churches in America today? How heartbroken would he be uh, to see so many churches co-opted by the gods of consumerism, by elitism, by white nationalism, bowing down and worshiping idol statues in the very place they're supposed to gather to worship Yahweh. And this is what Ezekiel is seeing, right? And if you remember from a few weeks ago, I mentioned that when you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, not only did these prophets uh, have to verbally communicate their messages, they often had to embody them in really bizarre ways. Okay, uh, if you read through Ezekiel, God has Ezekiel uh, shave his head, he has to shave his beard, he has to carry furniture out of his house, he has to lay on his left side for 390 days, and then he has to go lay on his right side, he has to eat food cooked over human feces, okay, it's pretty like nasty stuff. And all of this is meant to visually communicate God's judgment on Israel for their rebellion and for their idolatry, okay? Now, thankfully, uh, all hope isn't lost, because when you get to the middle of the book, you know, basically all of Ezekiel's worst nightmares come true. Jerusalem has fallen, the city has fallen, the temple has been destroyed, right? But in the second half of the book, you know, uh, Ezekiel begins to have these new visions of a messianic king who would one day come to redeem and restore Israel, um, and he begins to see this uh, new city, right? He begins to see this new reality, this new future reality where once again God would dwell with his people, where the temple would be rebuilt, where there would be a new city. And what we're getting at the very end of this book is a description in very exact detail of what this city will look like, okay? This city that Ezekiel says will be called Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. And this is such a comforting way to end a book as depressing and as dark as Ezekiel is, because it's a reminder that there is no place in life. There is no situation, there is no relationship, there is no circumstance where God is not present. The Lord is there. Now I know that we have our children joining us today, and so I wanted to make this as easy for us to remember. So if you're taking notes, it's going to be three points, really easy, um, easy to remember. The three points are going to be always, everywhere, and in us. Okay, the Lord is there always, everywhere, and in us. Okay, so first, always. The Israelites, uh, by this point in their story, are a traumatized people. Some of that trauma is brought on to them by others, and some of that trauma is brought on to them by themselves. Okay, but they are a traumatized people. You have to understand that these are a people who carry in their history 400 years of slavery, who carry in their history 40 years of walking around in the wilderness, who've experienced so much uh, violence and war and hostility, and now because of their failure to stay faithful to God and His commands of people who have been displaced from their homes and are now exiled in a foreign land. Okay, so for all intents and purposes, it seems like God has left the building. The very temple built to house His presence has been destroyed, and yet it is precisely in a time like this that Ezekiel is given this vision of a new city with the promise that the Lord is there. When everything is gone, the Lord is there. When everything around you is changing, the Lord is there. When it feels like everyone is moving on with life, leaving you behind, 
the Lord is there. When the future looks uncertain, the Lord is there. And I love that the words Jehovah Shema are literally the last two words that you read in the book of Ezekiel. As if to say that even when the entire world feels like it's falling apart, God always has the final word. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shema. Now you might be thinking, well, I don't always feel God. Right? I go to church on Sundays, I go to community group, but I don't always feel His presence. Right? How can you say God is there when my anxiety and my depression are spiking? How can you say that God is there when it seems like my entire life is in disarray, nothing is going according to plan, when nothing I've been praying for has been answered? But you see, you got to get this. We often confuse God's presence with His presence. Okay, let me say that again. We often confuse God's presence with His presence. We often confuse God's gifts with His glory. Two very different things. And we often only think that God is in the building when we feel an emotional high, or if our lives are in order, or we're getting the things we want. Right? We come back from a retreat, we say, God, You are with me. He is with you. We get a new job and we say, God was with me. Absolutely, He was. We close on a new home and we say, God was with me. He was. But He's also with you when you're unemployed. He's also with you in the mundane. He's also with you when your offering gets rejected. And it's often in the absence of what of God's presence that we begin to understand the power of God's presence. It's in the absence of the feeling that God is with you that we begin to develop the faith that He's with us even when we don't feel Him. Hebrews 11 wants His faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What we do not see. Sometimes God puts us in situations where we can't feel Him where we can't see Him in order that we might learn the heart of true faith, to put our faith not in the gifts, but in the giver. Not in the things that fade away, but in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a part of what it means to mature. You know, when you become a new believer, you know, think about, think back to the time when you first kind of became a new believer and everything was new. Everything was probably amazing. Every service, you were so blessed and so encouraged. Every community, you felt like you were seen for the first time. You know, you started serving and everything was so rewarding. But everyone goes through a stage in their maturity process where things start to feel stale. When you don't feel God as intimately as you did before, but true maturity actually begins to happen when you learn to trust that God is with you, even when His gifts are absent. Even when the feeling is absent. Because even the good gifts of God can become idols. Ask every married couple here, right? Often, sometimes we're always trying to kind of recapture the honeymoon feeling, right? That feeling of what it was like when you first got married, when everything was new and everything was exciting. You talk to a married couple who's been together for 20, 30, 40 years. Oftentimes those feelings aren't there anymore, but their love is deeper and it's so much more mature. Because they've understood how to love. They've understood how to be present even when the feeling 
is not present. Remember, God wants us to strip us of our idols, not make us dependent on them. Um, Jackie Hill Perry, she's one of my favorite authors at the moment, um, she says this. She says, since idols have no choice but to submit to time and space, if your idol is local, therefore located in a particular church, city, country, tax bracket, or political party, then if ever you are too far from its reach because you move or lost your job or your preferred president or the liquor store is closed or homeboy won't answer his phone, then it's at that point that you realize a localized idol is one that you won't always have access to, therefore you have a very inconsistent hope. Your idols will always leave you or forsake, and forsake you. That guy you're thinking about that's dominating your conscious right now is fleeting. Your job is fleeting. Your wealth is fleeting. Your youth is fleeting. I went to the wedding yesterday and I just danced a little bit and my back hurt this morning. <laughs> I realized my youth is fleeting. But not Jehovah Shammah. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. For He is always there. You know, in many ways, the, the pandemic exposed and laid bare all the empty promises of our idols that once gave us such a sense of security and confidence, right? Concerts, travel, shut down. Theaters, restaurants, closed. Sporting events and gatherings, gone. The economy, decimated. All it took was one virus and it was all gone. When we needed them the most, they were gone. And here we are as things start to open up again, here we all are all running back to them, thinking they're waiting for us with open arms. That's what you call an abusive relationship. All it took was one virus and it was all gone. But the Lord was there. And many of us didn't realize that Jesus was all we needed until Jesus was all we had. In the absence of God's gifts, we learn to appreciate God's glory. You know, in college, um, I took a music theory class where we studied the work of John Cage. Okay? And his most famous work is his song, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And I'm going to put the sheet music up on the screen. I don't know if you can see this. Uh, if you're wondering where the notes are, there are no notes. There is not one note in the entire song. And our professor performed this song for us on the first day of class, and she literally just sat at her piano for four minutes and 33 seconds. I thought it was a joke. Four minutes and 33 seconds. And when the song was first performed in 1952, it sparked a whole bunch of controversy and anger in the music community, because people said, how can you call this music? This isn't music, there aren't any notes. How can a song where a performer does not play a single note be considered music? It's literally four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, but when asked about it, you know what John Cage said? He said, there's no such thing as silence. What they thought was silence because they didn't know how to listen was full of sound. The sound of wind and raindrops outside, the sound of whispers in the audience and the faint cries of babies, and his point was this, that you can only appreciate the power of music when you experience the absence of what you think music is supposed to sound like. 
Okay, let me say that again. You can only appreciate the power of music in the absence of what you, of what you think music is supposed to sound like. He says, only then can you get to the beautiful realization that the music was always there to begin with. It never left. In the same way, I think that it's often in times when we don't necessarily feel God. It's in those moments that end up becoming the very pathways that enable us to really cherish the moments when we can. And if you live long enough and you live through multiple cycles of this, you will realize that God's presence was never gone to begin with. It was always there. It just didn't look the way we expected it to look. It just didn't sound the way we expected it to sound or feel the way we expected it to feel. The Lord is always there. Okay, number two, the Lord is there everywhere. Um, in the beginning uh, of Ezekiel, in the opening verses, it's Ezekiel's 30th birthday. Okay, and it's been five years for him living in exile. And he's sitting next to this river with his fellow prisoners, and he sees this vision of God's glory manifest in this huge cloud, very similar to the cloud that uh, led them as a pillar of smoke in the wilderness, uh, very similar to the cloud that sat uh, on the ark of the covenant inside the temple. But the strange thing about this vision is that this cloud is in Babylon. Not in Jerusalem. Not in the temple. God's glory, God's presence is in Babylon. What the heck is it doing in Babylon? And what Ezekiel realizes later on is that when God's presence departed the temple, he wasn't abandoning his people. He was going with them into exile. We often think that we have to go to church to experience the presence of God. Right? So we say things like, ah, I don't feel the presence of God when I'm in church anymore. Because we, we think that the presence of, of God is confined to this auditorium. Right? Uh, you know, we grew up thinking that God's presence only showed up in church, only showed up in the context of religious activity. No, the presence of God is everywhere. It shows up in Babylon. When you walk into the office on Monday morning, the Lord is there. When you walk into class this week, the Lord is there. When you're sitting alone at home, the Lord is there. Psalm 139 said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. This is so important for us as Christians living in Los Angeles to realize, because though there was a time maybe in your own life when it was like culturally acceptable to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, that time is a distant memory. I'm sorry to say. Barna studies show that 10% of people in large metropolitan cities, 10% identify as a resilient follower of Jesus. We are living in Babylon. And we need to start thinking of ourselves as exiles called to live and work and seek the prosperity of a city that is not our home. And that can be so overwhelming for many of us because every day this means we're going to be put in situations and confronted with values that don't align with the values of God. Now I talk to a lot of parents these days who tell me they're terrified 
of sending their kids to public schools now because they don't know what people are teaching anymore. Carol and I talk about this all the time. We wrestle with this, uh, you know, thinking about sending our kids to school. And in those moments, we have to remember that though we can't go with our kids to school, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Though there are things outside of our control, the Lord is there. Especially for those of us who've grown up in the church, we've been programmed to believe that the Lord only shows up in certain places, right? That He only shows up on Sunday morning, in our community groups, in our prayer meetings. But this is why Ezekiel is so confused as to why the Shekinah glory of God shows up in Babylon. But you see, the presence of God is not tied to a religious activity. There was never meant to be a separation between the sacred and the secular. We find the presence of God everywhere. In every conversation, in every relationship, in every home, in every office. And we need to know this or else we will not survive in this world. We, were, we will either live in fear that God is only with us when we're doing, quote, Christian things and not with us when we're out there in the world. Or we will begin to live compartmentalized lives that are unable to find any sense of meaning or purpose outside of, quote, church. You know, one of the reasons we started doing city events, one of the reasons we started hosting happy hours, why we have city workshops in ceramics and dumpling making and visual art, even though these things aren't traditionally seen as, quote, religious, spiritual things, is that we want to train our congregation to see that the Lord is everywhere, that everything is sacred, that the Lord is there in the kitchen, the Lord is there in the coffee shop. The Lord is there in the studio. The Lord is there when we're changing diapers in the classroom, when we're out with our friends. The Lord is there. Rich Theotis, who's a pastor out in New York, he, he often talks about how the first person filled with the Spirit in the Bible, uh, in the book of Exodus, was not a prophet or a priest or a king, but a craftsman. Reminding us that the Spirit's presence and empowerment is for all of life, not just religious life. We need to get out of this thinking that there are places where God is and places where God is not. This is my biggest contention with the way so many churches have done missions, right, and evangelism. Oftentimes churches have said, we need to bring God to this place. We need to go to this other country. They need God and we need to bring God there. No, no, no. The Lord is already there. God's been there long before you were born. We just have to discern what the Lord is up to and then join Him in that world. And ask God, how can we partner you, partner with you in the work that you're already doing? The Lord is there. You know, when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, okay, Jesus was the manifest presence of God here on earth. Right? It was God in the flesh. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And what is very interesting is that you would think that Jesus, if He truly is the presence of God walking around on earth, you would think He would be spending all His time in church. You would think He would be spending all His time with Christian people. When you read the Gospels, that's not what you see at all. You see Him at dinner parties. You see him in people's homes. You find him with lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes. You find him in the darkest corners of society. As if to show all of us that more, that more often than not, the presence of God shows up in the most unlikely places. 
G.K. Chesterton once said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. The people you think God would never dwell with, the places you think God would never go, these are the very places we find Him. The Lord is there. You know, this week um, I watched a video of a Ukrainian family in their living room. Just amidst everything going on in that country right now, um, bombs exploding a few miles away. And it's a video of them singing one of my favorite hymns together, He Will Hold Me Fast. And here are the opening lines of the song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And it's such a profoundly beautiful moment because you watch a video like that and your first instinct is, where are you, God? Why aren't you with the people of Ukraine right now? Where are you? God, are you absent? Where are you in the midst of all this war and bloodshed and hostility? And yet for this family, they understood more than anyone that God was there. That even when they made their bed in the depths, the Lord was there. That His right hand was holding them fast. How transformed would our city be if followers of Jesus walked into work or class on Monday morning and understood they were standing on holy ground because the Lord was there? How transformed would our relationships and our homes be if followers of Jesus stepped into every conversation and meal believing that the Lord was there? It would change everything. It would change everything. So the Lord is there always, everywhere, and finally, in us. In us. The beauty of the Gospel is not just that Christ came to be with His people, the beauty of the Gospel is that Christ came to live inside His people, so that we would never lose His presence. When you go back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve enjoyed unbroken fellowship in God's presence. They enjoyed perfect communion with the Father. But then when sin entered the world, all of a sudden it fractured that relationship. It hindered our ability to live in His presence. Right? And we began to take, we began to worship lesser idols, thinking they would give us the same joy and the same satisfaction and the same deep sense of contentment. You know, sometimes I hate that I'm so attached to my phone. And there are moments when I kind of like stand outside of my body and I realize that Carol and I were looking at our phones, looking at pictures of our kids, while our kids are standing right in front of us. It's this weird thing where like, we've chosen a lesser thing rather than to be present with our kids. And this is what sin did to us. Sin came in and said, there are these other things that can kind of replace the presence you've enjoyed. So why don't you take this? And all of a sudden it sent us all into exile, desperately longing for home and not quite sure how to find it. There was something off in the soul, but we didn't know quite how to get there. And so what God did was that He went into exile with us. He stepped into human history and He walked among His people and He fed them. He healed them. He loved them so that we would get a taste of home again. He became the very temple in which the presence of God dwelt. And then on the cross, 
Jesus paid the ultimate price to reconcile us to himself and reopen access to the Father so that those who were without his presence could enjoy his presence once again. This is what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Except this time it wasn't a physical temple. We were the temple. His spirit would reside in us. And when Jesus ascends to the Father and he says, I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father, he leaves his followers with the promise of a new heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, which now lives in them. We see this promise in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 36, when God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. They say that the only thing better than Christ beside you is Christ inside you. Now, what does this mean for you and me today? Let me just close with this. What does it mean for you and me today that God's presence lives inside each and every one of us? It means that where we go, God goes. It means that we are the presence of God to those around us. We are these huge signposts for a world in turmoil that the Lord is there. You know those moments when you drop everything to go be with your friend who's grieving? You know what you are? You're reminding that friend that the Lord is there. Because the Lord lives inside you. You know when you stop and offer a word of encouragement to someone who's struggling? You know what you're doing? You're reminding that person that the Lord is there. Because the Lord lives inside you. When you choose to be present with people in this age of distraction, you are giving them a taste of God's presence because God lives in you. You ever spend time with those people who just because they're in the room, you just feel a certain sense of home? You ever spend time with those people who just bring a certain sense of peace and calm to every situation? They're just always a non-anxious presence when everything is going on and everything is falling apart around you. You just want to be with those people. Those people you automatically think to call first when you're going through stuff. This is what it means to be God's presence in a world that so desperately needs it. Friends, through Christ, you and I can be living, breathing embodiments of the promise of Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there, always, everywhere, and in us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we know that you are here. We don't always feel your presence, but we know you're with us. Because you're a God who goes into exile with us. And so God, we pray that you would just help us to become more aware of your presence, not just in this space, but in all the spaces we inhabit throughout the week, in all of our relationships, in all of our conversations, in our workplaces. May we become sensitive to your spirit. May we begin to acknowledge the places where you show up where we least expect it. God, would you give us a fresh 
experience of your presence today. God, I know that there are so many people in this room who are lonely, who are experiencing anxiety and depression, who are just going through a lot of stuff. And I pray that they would know that even when the entire world fails them, even when everything is gone, that you are there. We continue to lift up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, who right now are surrounded by so much fear and hostility and war and violence. Wherever they are and whatever they're doing, I pray that in the depth of their soul, they will be assured that you are there. That you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for this great promise of Jehovah Shema. We pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.